Operator error. Not the sound guys. It's the speaker guy. That was a long day yesterday. Can't remember how to turn a mic on anymore. Well, I'll try it again. Open your Bibles up to James chapter 2. Page 1208, if you're using a pew Bible. It's really funny to uh, come to you this morning with this message entitled, What is Saving Faith? Drawn here from a, a second chapter of James. And the reason it's kind of funny for me is because yesterday we were here from the early hours of the morning until relatively late at night. We had four preachers come in and they hammered away. I mean, they left it here on the pulpit. There was nothing left of them. And the theme all the way through was justification by grace through faith alone. And that is a fabulous doctrine. And so we arrive at James chapter 2, where James says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's just kind of coincidentally interesting that that's this morning's message. We're back in James, and we're talking about saving faith. What is saving faith? What is it? What does it look like? How do we know whether we have it? As a parent, how do we know if our children have it? What is saving faith? We live in a really interesting time in history, history of the world, actually. And that is that the Word of God is now more widely available on this planet than at any time in the history of the world. There are more Bibles available to more people. There is no shortage, really, of the Word of God. And yet, with a proliferation of Bibles, there is an abundant shortage of gospel preaching and gospel understanding. It's really unique. The Word of God available widely and freely, and yet the gospel that that very Word of God proclaims is, to a great degree, been obscured. These are very interesting days. There is a growing ignorance in the Western church the church in America, to be sure, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What has been substituted for it is what some have called Christianity light. A simple version, a stripped-down version. One that takes away all the sharp corners and files down the pointy edges. We live in a culture and a time when consumers are king, right? Any retailer will tell you that. The consumer is king. We give them what they want. That's how they buy our product. And many, many have attempted to package the gospel in a consumer-friendly fashion so that it will appeal to the widest possible audience. 
I believe their intentions are noble, but their understanding of the gospel is defective. Seldom do we hear anymore, take up your cross and follow me. Instead, we hear something like, you can have your best life now. That's the message in way too many pulpits. The result of decades of this kind of preaching is a church that is very immature, very weak, likely filled with tares. Those who think they are believers but are not. Easy believism. You can pack a crowd in if you package it the right way. Barnum and Bailey had no trouble gathering a crowd. That's not the hard thing to do. The hard thing is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. The driving force, I think, behind this easy believism is what is called decisional regeneration. Decisional regeneration. Mark that down. Decisional regeneration teaches, in essence, that a verbal profession of faith results in a person being born again. All one must do is profess a faith in Jesus Christ of some sort, and that will do it. You will be born again. Make a decision for Christ is the way it's packaged. For centuries, for centuries from the Middle Ages on, the church was decimated by what was known as baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration, the the false notion that being baptized washed away original sin and conferred saving grace upon a person and brought them into the family of God. That very notion of baptismal regeneration encouraged unconverted people by the multitudes to flock into the church until it became a mixed multitude. We rightly reject baptismal regeneration. We should also rightly reject decisional regeneration as well. The idea that we can give someone an assurance that they have been truly converted based on a mere verbal profession of faith. That somehow if they answer yes to a certain prescribed series of questions that they pray the right prayer that they become a child of God. That our assurance is based upon the things we've spoken with our mouth. Very dangerous. Very dangerous. Decisional regeneration and baptismal regeneration have this in common. They falsely think that the power of salvation lies 
in the hands of man and not God. If I just do this, God will save me. Quantity of water. Words from the mouth. It lies with me and not with God. And my friends, the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end that salvation is of who? It is of the Lord. It is God who saves. And this is only God who saves. The jargon, by the way, of decisional regeneration goes something like this. I accepted Jesus Christ when I was. But it was only later that I began following him. That is a very dangerous expression. I accepted Jesus Christ. My friends, it lies not whether you accept Jesus Christ. It lies whether Jesus Christ accepts you. And that you would throw yourself upon his mercy in faith. James here is addressing a problem in the first century church. He's dealing with a problem there in the first century church, but in dealing with that problem, he has a lot to say to us today, 20 centuries removed. The heart of man really doesn't change very much. As we begin to unpack what he has here for us, beginning in verse 14, we probably should note for the record that James and Paul are not in opposition to each other. So let that just be said. When Paul is speaking about justification, primarily in the book of Romans and Galatians, he is speaking about how is a sinner made right before God, and it is by grace through faith alone. James is taking up the topic of salvation from a different angle. And he is addressing the issue of one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ. What now should his life look like? You see, because the grace of God that saves is the grace of God that transforms. It transforms. It changes people. We might say it this way with regard to the place of human effort or good works in the salvation formula. Works are not the root, but the fruit of a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They are not the root, but they are the fruit. They are necessary. They are essential. They are non-negotiable. By the way, just you can keep your thumb there in James if you want and look back at Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment, page 1170. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 8. We love these verses. And by the way, we always tend to stop at verse 9. And I, don't, I don't know why that is, Jim. Short memories, right? We can't include 10. Too much to memorize. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. We like that. We love it. And we should. It's true. For 
We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Paul was not afraid of talking about good works. They are an essential reality of a regenerated heart. Back to James 2. James leads off here in verse 14, this whole section of his letter, by asking a couple of rhetorical questions, verse 14. The construction of these questions in the Greek expects a negative answer. The correct answer to these questions is no. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Answer, no use at all. Can that faith save him? Answer, no, it cannot. No, it cannot. In other words, can a faith that produces no internal or external change, no distinctively Christian deeds actually save anyone? At the judgment of God... The final judgment, will God accept that kind of faith? A faith that has made no difference in a person's life. Answer? He will not. He will not. So we're back to our opening question. What is saving faith? This is not merely an academic discussion. This is a discussion of eternal significance. What is saving faith? James will answer the question for us this morning, and he will do it in a very interesting way. And that is he draws forward four case studies. Remember in business school, case studies had first come in when I was in school in the 70s. And so everybody, you'd get a case study and you'd have a little study group and you'd go through it and do your work and come together and make a presentation, which basically meant one person did all the work and everybody else rode their coattails. The case study method. Well, we have the case study method here. James presents four case studies in saving faith. In the section here of chapter 2. And he does it so that we might know it when we see it. We might know it when we see it. Four case studies. Case study number one. The case of the needy brother or sister. The case of the needy brother or sister. Beginning in verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in daily need of food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? The case of the poor believer. James says that someone comes into your midst or is part of your fellowship who even by ancient standards is poor. Look what he says. They are without clothing. They are naked. 
They are in need of daily food. This is somebody in a really bad way. They lack the clothing necessary to be warm. They they lack the food necessary to sustain their daily need. How does the believer respond to them? Verse 16, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, be gone. No, that's not in there, sorry. That's the response, be warmed, be filled. You give them good wishes. Hope it works out for you. Go in peace, be warned, be filled. It's the idea of, I wish you well. You go take care of yourself. You know, you should put some clothes on. It's cold out there. And and all that groaning noise from your stomach, man, you really should get something to eat. Be warned, be filled. Go in peace. Or perhaps it's this idea. May, May God clothe you and feed you but I'm not going to do it. Either way, we get the idea of the response. It's cruel. It's heartless. It's useless. It's dead. It's dead. By the way, this is um, not a case study about feeding the poor in general. It's talking about the poor within the the fellowship of believers. It's a brother or sister, verse 15, you see it? Brother or sister, it's all clothing and in need of daily food. That's someone in the body, inside the family. That's what makes this so doubly despicable. Part of the family of God, and and you say to him, you know, Get out of here. Be gone. John addresses the same thing. First John chapter three, verse 17 and 18. He addresses it this way. He says, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Needs to work out in shoe leather. So how do we apply it for us? There's no one in this body that is naked in need of daily food. We have people that are economically disadvantaged, to be sure, but nobody is at the level that James is talking about here. So is this interesting? And on we go. Trying to think about how to apply it this week. Thought about this way. Somebody in in the body here is sick. You find out that they're sick, and so... We say to them, hope you feel better. 
And then we put them out of our mind. Gee, I hope you feel better. We don't pray for them. We don't offer to bring them a meal. We don't seek to alleviate their suffering in any way. We just say, gee, I hope you feel better. Go home, take some Robitussin, you know. Stop coughing near me. Be warmed, be filled, and be gone. Saving faith is compassionate. Write that down. That's the lesson of case study number one. Saving faith is compassionate. It is a compassionate faith. If our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not changing our heart to make us more and more compassionate because our Savior was compassionate. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Case study number two. Verses 18 to 20. Demons. Case study number two. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Case study of the demons. James is going to take up an anticipated objection in this case study. The imaginary objector here is going to to postulate for James, well, that's fine with you, James, but you see, God grants faith to some people and works to others. And he's granted to me faith and he's granted to you works. So you go do your works, he's granted to me faith. I'll stay home and believe. I stay home and believe, you go out and work. I love James' response to that. Show me your faith without the works or apart from the works. And I will show you mine by my works. It is an absurd and ludicrous assertion that you have a faith that is totally invisible. James says, get real. Let's see the stuff. Show me what you got. This notion, by the way, that saving faith is a purely intellectual endeavor. Even though that intellectual endeavor is orthodox. James calls it demon faith. You see that verse 19? This is not saving faith. This is demon faith. God is one. The demons also believe that. This is drawn, by the way, from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is the, the creed of orthodoxy of Judaism. That's why James lifts it out and 
inserts it here. This is the sum total of what it meant to be a, a believing and orthodox Jew, Old Testament believer. James says, listen, your orthodoxy is impeccable. So what? Demons have impeccable orthodoxy. They're very orthodox. They know exactly who the true God is and Jesus, his son. There's not a doubt in their mind. They also know, by the way, that Jesus will one day banish them to the lake of fire. You can check it out on your own. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, Mark 1, 24, Revelation 19, 20. You can string them together. The demons know exactly who God is and Christ, his son. But their belief in the sovereignty of God their orthodox belief does not result in love for him, but terror. That's what James says. They shudder. You see it? Verse 19. The idea of the hair on the back of their neck stands up if they had hair on the back of their neck, which we don't know. Maybe they do. They shudder. They're afraid. Go to John again, 1 John 4.18, the Apostle John. I'll just read it to you. He says, there's no fear in love. John 4.18, there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. This is the point. The demons believe in orthodox faith, but it does not result in a heart of love for God. It results in a, in a heart of fear, trembling, loathing. What do I do with it? I ask myself, is there a Love for Christ in my heart. Is there a love for Christ in my heart? Do I long to be with him? We sang some wonderful lyrics here a little while ago. Just lyrics of aspiration, of wanting to be with our God. Is it true? Is it really the longing of our hearts? Does our orthodoxy produce in us a love for God in Christ in which we desire to be in his presence? Because that's what saving faith does. That's what saving faith does. If our faith is merely a set of theological propositions, a tightly constructed philosophical argument, and it has not gone from here to here, it has not transformed us to fill our hearts for, with love for God. We're in trouble. We are in trouble. Lesson is simple here. Case study number two, lesson, saving faith is God-loving. 
Saving faith is God-loving. It is a God-loving faith. James continues. He brings forward another case for us to examine. Case number three, the case of Abraham. This one's rich. The case of Abraham. By the way, James expects a working knowledge of the Old Testament. You can see that, right? You believe that God is one, you do well. He expects a working knowledge of the Old Testament to know the Shema. You would know that. He's going to draw forward the case of Abraham. He's going to expect a working knowledge of the life of Abraham. After this, case four, he's going to speak of Rahab. He's going to expect you to have a working knowledge of the life of Rahab. God expects us to know his word. Never, ever, ever did Jesus say to anyone, you know, you're right. The Bible's really confusing and hard to understand. No, he responds instead by saying, have you not read? Have you not read? Do you not know? Saving faith produces, this is my own, this would be case five, but anyway. (laughs) Saving faith produces in us a a desire to know God. Maybe it's a sub-point of loving God, right? It's a God-loving faith. Produces a desire to know God. It is a contradiction to claim a saving relationship with God and not desire to know him through his word. It is a contradiction. God expects us to read and understand and be familiar with his word. The case of Abraham. This is the patriarch of Israel, right? Abraham, the father of the nation, the father of all believers, as Paul will draw him forth. Beginning in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? James draws forward for us the most shocking account, I think, in the Old Testament. I think this has to be the most shocking chapter to be found in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 22. This is the command from God to Abraham that he must kill his son as an offering to God. It's shocking. It is the capstone, by the way, of Abraham's faithful life. It is the capstone. His willingness to offer his only son is the capstone of a life of faith. Let's watch how James pulls it together. Hebrews 11 tells us, by the way, Hebrews eleven nineteen. check it on your own. When Abraham willingly offered Isaac, he did so believing that God could raise the dead. That God could raise the dead. And James says when he offered him, he was justified by his works. That very deed justified him, James says. 
What is James talking about? Introduces us to the word justify. The word justify, it has two primary meanings. We focus most of our attention on the first meaning. James is referring to the second. The first meaning of the word justify is to be put into a right relationship with God. To be acquitted, to be declared and treated as righteous. Romans chapter 3 verse 20, it's used that way. That's the predominant use of the word. To be put into a right relationship with God. But there is a secondary meaning of the word. And it means to show or prove to be right, to be vindicated. It means to be vindicated. To be shown to be right. To be proved to be right. Choose that way. You can check it on your own. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. Luke chapter 16, verse 15. It's the way James is using it here. Abraham lived a life of saving faith. According to Hebrews 11, by faith he left his homeland for lands unknown. By faith he wandered about in the promised land for decades. By faith he waited 25 years for God to give him a son. And then in complete obedience to God, he was willing to offer that son as a sacrifice because God commanded him to do it. James says here in verse 22 that you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, the faith was perfected. It was brought to completeness. What is he talking about? He's looking at Abraham's life and and he's making this observation that all along the way, Abraham's faith was working itself out. Each new trial, his faith was strengthened as he responded to it. It brought him closer and closer to God. Until it reached its final and intended goal. Verse 22. It was brought to its completion. It was perfected in Abraham's willingness to give God everything. Including his only begotten son. It is the final and public act of offering Isaac as a sacrifice that fulfills the earlier prophecy of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 that said that Abraham's faith had been reckoned to him as righteousness, right? Verse 23 here in James. The scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief in God, Genesis 15, that God would give him a son. His belief in the word of God is what God credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. It was his justifying faith. But that justifying faith continued to operate, continued to work itself out. It continued to grow stronger and and grasp more and more of him to the place where finally, when God says to Abraham, I want you to kill your own son, Abraham says, okay. Okay. It is that kind of progression of his faith that causes God to look on him, verse 23, and call him the friend of God. The friend of God. Here's the point. 
The point James is making is that the faith that God counts as righteousness, saving faith, must ultimately manifest itself in an unquestioning obedience to offer God whatever he wants. That's what saving faith looks like. He had it in chapter 15. It was vindicated before a watching world. It was demonstrated for all to look at for all time. When God said to him, kill your only begotten son. And Abraham said, okay. That which was once secret has now been made manifest. Verse 18 again. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you mine by my works. You want to know that Abraham had saving faith? Genesis 22 is the ultimate illustration of that reality. Now, God has not called anyone before or since to offer the kind of sacrifice that he called Abraham to offer. That is a one-time and unique action of God. But God does call all who name the name of Jesus Christ to be willing to surrender everything to him. That's what saving faith is. It is a willingness to surrender it all. How much God will ask us to give, we do not know. The scripture inclines me to believe that God works with us progressively. He asks for a little more and a little more and a little more as our faith continues to grow and deepen. But fundamentally at its core, saving faith is a willingness to give God everything. Everything. The lesson is this. Saving faith is sacrificial. Write it down. Saving faith is sacrificial. Saving faith is compassionate. Saving faith is God-loving. Saving faith is sacrificial. It is a sacrificial faith. And there's no way around it. By the way, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. What James is saying is it's not by a faith that is alone. It is a faith that works. It's a faith that works. It is not our profession of faith. It is our possession of faith that saves us. And that takes us to case study number four. And this is a fascinating one. You know, of all the people that James could reach back to into the Old Testament to cite for his case studies, I find this one fascinating. Back to back, he's given us the patriarch and the prostitute. The patriarch and the prostitute. Because maybe you say that, uh, you know, Abraham, he was kind of a unique guy. And indeed he was. And that kind of faith... That's an anomaly. People, people don't have faith like that. I don't have faith like that. That's not the kind of faith that God really wants from us. He was a special man set aside. 
He's not the man to pattern our life after. Fine. How about a prostitute? Maybe you'd rather pattern your, pattern your life after her. So James reminds us of what saving faith looks like in the life of an ancient prostitute by the name of Rahab. Verse 25. And in the same way, as in the same way as what? In the same way as Abraham. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It is lifeless. All right, I'm going to need to turn you back into Joshua. So go back to Joshua chapter 2, page 225. I could tell you what she said, but I think it would be better if I read it to you. Joshua chapter 2. By the way, Rahab also makes it into Hebrews chapter 11, into the hall of faith, right? Here's the context, Joshua 2. They're entered into the promised land. They're ready to assault the city of Jericho. It is a walled city. It is a fortified city. It is an ancient city. It is an impregnable city. So what's the first thing a military commander must do? You need intelligence. You need to scope it out. You need to find where the weak points are. How to conquer the city. And so he sends out some spies, right? Joshua sends out spies. They make it into the walled city of Jericho and they're looking for information. Then, as in now, where do you go for information? You go to the local tavern. That's where you go. Because that's where people talk. Associated with local taverns are comfort stations. They were in the ancient world. They are today. And so that's where the spies go. They look for the place where information is available. The place where information is available is the house of the local prostitute. So they go there. They're looking for information. While they're there, she utters the most amazing confession of faith. It's just incredible. On the lips of a Gentile woman who is a prostitute. She speaks of the power and the authority of Israel's God and the certainty of his victory over the ancient and walled city of Jericho. Let's look at it, verse 9. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given, past tense, you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed. By the way, that was 40 years ago. That happened 40 years before this. Verse 11, and when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For, here's a confession, the Lord your God 
He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That is her confession of faith. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She confesses that the God of Israel is the one true God. She further goes on to say, when you have conquered the city, please spare our lives. This is her confession of faith. She then seals it with her works, right? Verse 15, by letting them down by a rope through the window. And then when they come to the house looking for the spies, she sends them off in a different way. Tells the spies to go and hide in the hill country for a while. She takes risks. That's the point. Rahab's faith is a risky faith. She not only confesses with her mouth that Jesus is Lord... But she is willing to put it all on the line. What do you think is the penalty for helping spies scope out the city? What do you think would be an appropriate penalty in that day? Yeah, you bet. She's dead. She's dead. She's a dead woman. She's a dead woman. She has put it all on the line. She's gambled everything on her confession of faith. She doesn't merely say that she believes in God will overthrow the city. She acts on her faith. And she goes way out on the limb. Way out on the limb. She risks her own life. According to Hebrews 11 and verse 31, that is the proof of her saving faith. That's the proof. And that takes us to our lesson. The lesson of this case study is that saving faith is active. It is active. Saving faith is compassionate. Saving faith is God-loving. Saving faith is sacrificial. And saving faith is active. It's active. It prompts us to action even when it involves personal risk. Personal risk. So, here's the question. Is there something that you know you're supposed to do because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Or is there something that you are doing that you know you're supposed to stop doing because of your faith in Jesus Christ? And the question is, Will you act on your faith? Will your faith in Jesus Christ empower and motivate you to actually put your leather to it, to do something? Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be severed. Maybe there's a relationship that needs to be established. Maybe the mouth needs to be opened and words need to come out. A behavior that needs to end or another behavior that needs to begin.
Something must change, James would say. Something has to change. And it's different for every one of us. Every one of us. The faith must act. Must be active. The transformation of the human heart is a divine surgery. It is a heart replacement surgery. The prophet Ezekiel says, out comes the heart of stone and is replaced with a heart of flesh. The idea being it's a, the hard heart is removed, the soft and pliable heart is implanted. But that operation lies beyond the skill and reach and even sight of humanity. It's God's surgery. God is the one who saves. And he does it in a way that is invisible to the human eye. John chapter 3, Jesus said, The Spirit blows where he wills. You cannot see where he comes from and where he goes. But what we can see is what he leaves behind. And that's a transformed life. It's a transformed life. Not in completion, not in totality, but in principle. And that begins to act out. And my friends, everybody's on a different timetable. This is not a one-size-fits-all deal. The Spirit of God, if He is working in your heart, He is working. It is not the perfection of our faith. It is the direction of our faith. Are we moving? Are we moving? That's what James would say. James would say to us, look in the mirror. Don't be an idiot and forget what you see. Look in the mirror and do you see movement? Is there any movement? Is there anything alive inside there? Maybe you came in here this morning without saving faith at all. We talk about it being active. There's something you know you must do. What you must do is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must throw yourself on His mercy even now. God is calling out to you. Come to Him in faith. For the rest, these kinds of self-diagnostic tests, they're not designed to leave us crawling out of here and feeling, oh, woe is me. They're designed for our spiritual health so that we really take a temperature and we know what's going on inside. And if there's something that has to change, And by the power of the Spirit of God as you call out on Him for help, change it. Start changing. Be encouraged. God is on your side. He has committed Himself 
to conforming you and me to the image of Jesus Christ. You know that. He's predestined us to that goal. These works have been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world that we might walk in them. James is not a book about self-help Christianity. James is a book about what does real and vital Christianity really look like in the real world. May God grant us a living faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the hard message. Thank you for the piercing, for the wounding. Thank you for the healing in Christ. Thank you for the cross. For it is there that all of our sin has been atoned for. It is there that our justification has been made sure in Christ. It is there that your face smiles upon us. O Lord, let us enjoy that, that loving relationship today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.